said that everything was working fine until he plugged in his headphones. It crashed the whole matrix. Just that <laughs> plug in your head starting his computer. <laughs> oh, man, Y'all. that's great. Yeah, Is he anti-Civ? Really- I've gathered... Kev might have some anti-Civ running through his veins. He um he's not anti-Civ, but he's definitely like hardcore, like pro ecology, and he's generally just pessimistic about everything. So like civilization might have been a bad idea. There's just nothing we could do about it at this point, you know. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. No, I was telling Alex this last night because we just did our, our our upcoming patron episode. We recorded last night. I had this like shitty laptop for. I think I got it whenever I started my social work bachelor's and this thing is just so shitty. And I just recently decided to invest in getting like a new laptop and it literally like, it takes me a 10th of the time now to edit an episode. I mean, I used to spend like 10 hours. So what's the deal with Kevin? What the fuck we got, is Kevin? Yeah. What's the, yeah, it, we don't know where he's at. He were, I mean, the, the battle star lost her eyes and is waiting to take off. We got the FTL seven, fired up. He's fighting his way back from outside the matrix. <laughs> Kevin's uh, <laughs> football. Uh, Kevin's uh, reboots of uh, of his computer take like <laughs> five ten minutes. Uh, so I lit some frankincense, guys. This podcast is now a ritual. Let's turn it up. Ritual time. I'm burning like frankincense. Um, what is that? The black pullet. <laughs> I was just curious. I was reading about it, and I just ordered it the other day. It's about literally like making talismans and like dark magic rituals. Killer. Fuck yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm a. It, it's frankincense resin too, so it's the good stuff. Hell you yeah. inhale enough of that, that's uh, psychoactive. So what are we talking but about? It also chills me the fuck out, and I need that. Chilled the fuck out is would be good for I think for me too. Yeah, I yeah. use it when I meditate. It helps me get into that meditative space, just the smell of it and everything. Yeah. So like whenever I smell it, it just like brings me down. That's cool because this train runs on crippling anxiety. Yes. <laughs> Oof, yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Fucking just shots fired right away on the on the recording tonight, Neil. Uh, well, I'm here to help. Yeah. Oh, do we have? Maybe Kevin is gonna Ooh, get. No, it. he he defeated Agent Kevin. Smith. What's up? You're here. I made it. You made it. You're on the Battlestar Lost Horizon. We got the FTL fired Back. up. I'm having like um this moment where this your your apartment is making me remember the movie Johnny Mnemonic. Oh hell yeah! Talking to dolphins. Yeah, <laughs> talking to dolphins. Mm-hmm. We were actually going to do that for a Red Library <laughs> Cinema Night once. Henry Rollins is in that? That's right, yeah. Yeah, but, we did John Wick, and someone had mentioned doing Johnny Mnemonic. It might still happen. I emailed Todd McGowan about John Wick and had a, a brief discussion with him about those films. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, it was after they did their episode on uh, uh, interpassivity. Mm-hmm. And I was saying something like, uh, so John Wick films, there's like the enjoying the revenge without actually going out and getting revenge, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the kind of like compounded enjoyment of the other people also enjoying the enjoyment of revenge. That that was my theory about why these films are as popular as they are. And and he said, did you enjoy it? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, how could you not? It's it's violence ballet. It's wonderful. Have you seen it, Jason? No, I haven't. Chris, do you have a strong opinion about the John Wick films? I thought it was great. Um, like, I don't generally tend to watch action movies because they're yep. too dumb. But, like, John Wick was... I went into it expecting, this is going to be dumb. And it didn't matter that it was. It was awesome. Yeah, so, <laughs> it was something so about good. it. It just yeah. cut through that. Because I have that same that same feeling about action movies. Like, I'm always expecting to just be, like, bored. You know? Like, why, why am I watching this? But, dude, John Wick somehow magically just cut through all of that and i was like fascinated the whole time when i was uh in college i needed money and 
one of the things that I did is I applied for a job that I had no business applying for. It was a tech support position in a call center. I'm doing desktop support for, you know, all, all sorts of things that people plug into their computers. Yeah. And um, I got the job because I, those I did. Those were the fucking days. Yeah. I mean, I knew how to use Google, right? And <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I faked it enough. They they, they liked me, I guess. Um, so, I, I, I showed up and kind of like through the, doing that job, started to learn how about computers. But I would um, lie to people incessantly about what was wrong with their computers. I remember people not being able to connect to their Wi-Fi, and I had uh, somebody convinced that it was because there had been very bad solar flares that day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they bought it. Totally, totally bought that. I mean, why wouldn't they? They don't know anything about computers, and you're the expert. Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got paid. It was like piecework. You got paid for resolving a case. So basically, if somebody called, you opened a case, and then you'd, you know, ostensibly fix whatever was wrong with their computer... And if they didn't call back within like 24 hours, I think it was, then the case was closed and you got like some very small amount of money. Um, I found Kevin. Oh, he's back. Uh, So anyways, we we had these things called quick cases. So if somebody called and it was like not your problem to resolve, like it was they needed to call Comcast or something that you closed that real quick and you, you got like 50 cents or something for that kind of a thing. There was this dude who would call up. And he, he, like, with a lot of regularity, and I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Richard. And he called so often, he was always saying that the FBI was reading his emails and, like, hacking his shit. I mean, that's probably true. Uh, well, anyway, so we would just be like, oh, um, if it, install a firewall. And then, like, he would, it would always be, like, a day before he'd call back, but he would call, like, every day. Eventually, somebody from the, the he was in a mental health facility. He was an inpatient, like, you know, put there, and he was, he was schizophrenic. And they were saying that this was one of his privileges was the ability to call us and uh, <laughs> um, talk about his computer issues. You know, he was a nice guy. He wasn't yelling at us usually. And yeah. um, we were getting paid for resolving the cases, right? And then one day it showed up in the system that this guy, like, um, you know, Richard Smith, I guess I can't remember his name, became a quick case, actually. So we didn't get paid for him anymore. It was a sad day. Oh, oh man. That's a major bummer. Yeah. All right. So now everybody's here. This is cool. What are what are we talking about? Um, there was a lot of ideas kind of batted around. I think on our our Slack group. Do we have uh, we Bastille was one. The right has the phallus. The left wants to be the phallus. That was that was my contribution. I I don't know what that means, but I'm interested to hear. It's a great place say. to start, actually. It's about dicks. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite the sausage fest. So yeah, totally leftist dude podcast group. Total sausage. I mean, the the problem is, is that you know what they say that anything only guys like isn't actually cool, and that's the problem is that we're into shit that isn't cool. So it's like we can't help it that no girls want to come hang out with us. (laughs) (laughs) We're into lame shit. I'm married, and my wife is wonderful and beautiful, but she doesn't want to talk to me about this stuff. Yeah, that's true. My girlfriend uh, doesn't doesn't want to talk to me about this stuff either. She's sitting on the couch right behind me listening to me say that. Do you remember when you were in yeah, middle school? Yeah, made me close the doors. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got divorced because of it, so fuck all of you. <laughs> Did you actually get divorced because of this? It's a very long story. <laughs> I, got, I got divorced because I was a piece of shit. 
for comfort, man. That is just too close to an affirmation. Wow. There, there were witches involved. It was, there was a lot of Alex knows the story very intimately. No, it wasn't specifically because of this. It was a lot of other bullshit. But this would be a tension that would come up. I'll say that. Right. Yeah, no, I get that. I definitely get that. So far, this has been okay since uh, my wife and I both work from home and we spend like every waking hour together. So she's like, okay, go in the other room and spend time <laughs> with the your fuck friends. out of here. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, like do something, please. She'll watch like YouTube and like all of her YouTube stuff that I I'll, that I would never watch. She's got like a bunch of channels she follows, like, like makeup what? stuff, like makeup oh, okay. stuff and like conspiracy theories and <laughs> yeah, gamer stuff. Yeah. Gamer stuff. Oh yeah, you mentioned she plays Final Fantasy. So she's yeah. she a bit of a gamer? She's a little bit. Not big time, but you know, she's super into Minecraft or was for a while. And then like Final Fantasy and Skyrim. We were both used to like sit next to each other and play Skyrim. I'd play on my laptop and she'd play on the PS whatever. Whatever she has. I don't know. PS whatever. <laughs> the, the the Netflix viewing machine that she plays video <laughs> games on. <laughs> yeah, that's what it really is. I, I'm, I've always been a PC guy. That's just because I'm a different kind of nerd. Like, uh, PC Master Race. Is that why? That's why <laughs> I, I grew I grew up playing like Civilization Four on uh you know PC yeah. Age of Empires yeah that um, stuff actually my first Diablo. Civilization was Civilization Two it okay. shows you how old I am actually no it wasn't it was Civilization One you know I thought I would like playing Civilization again I used to play like back in the day and then I got Civilization Six and I played like one game for like. 30 hours and then i never open the game up again it's not as customizable as it used to be so it's less fun to me yeah it's kind of i don't know it's weird it's a weird game now it's different let's pick a topic let's let's get into it what does it mean to um for the the phallus what the the left wants to be the phallus Uh yeah i was curious about that but i figured we'd just we'd just have neil tell us here can I hold on really quick, Neil? Can I propose maybe a follow-up thing that we can also talk about, which is the, the the whole thing about guilt that we were talking about? I feel like that could be a productive discussion. Righteousness, guilt. We were talking yeah. about that last time too. Yeah. Combo topic. Yeah. So okay, I'm gonna like pontificate here for a little bit. Right. Wait. So who asked about the phallus? Me. I did. I asked. I, I know what a phallus is. <laughs> I guess you think you do. Do you? <laughs> That's your first mistake, comrade Kevin. You yeah, think well, you know what the phallus is. So here, anyway, like, okay. this all is, I know is that I know nothing. It's, it's a Lacanian term, right? So it's like a, the symbolic phallus. It's not not like the the literal thing here, uh-huh. right? So I'm going to actually say, okay, I'm going to pose this to you, Alex, because I think you're probably pretty steeped in Lacan yourself here from our, our previous conversations here. So one of the things I said earlier today was that the right actually has the phallus, and I think that they enjoy having it. And I think that the left wants to be the phallus, never doesn't want to have it, because uh, if it had it, then it would actually have to act as if it had the phallus, which I don't think it's prepared to do. So if I were to say that to you, you know, what would your your response to that be? <laughs> that's, an interesting, that's an interesting way of formulating it, you know? Um, so you think that the right has the phallus. I do. So they're like almost like uh, like they'd be in the position of like almost like in like a pervert's discourse or something where they just like perceive that they understand jouissance or something like that. Is that what you would mean by that? Or how, how do you mean have the phallus? Like, because to me, I understand phallus as like a symbolic, as like a symbolic representation of power or like some kind of like uh, authority that it can also, that it can also represent kind of like um lack of like, it's of like that whole Electra type of complex, like in women of like lacking the phallus or like desiring to have the phallus. So I feel like, 
That's interesting. I mean, on the left, I'm like way more interested in what you're saying about the left than on the right. But I just want to be clear about what you mean with like having the phallus on the right. Okay. Yeah. So I, w- the- I wouldn't even have a response. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> this comes down to to symbolic castration. That's kind of like where I would okay. say we, we'd start, right? Okay. A quick version of this is that one of the th- when when we're children, we do not experience the the world is is castrated subjects. There's there's different things that happen to us that make us realize that we want things that we can't have, that we desire things that are off limits, and that if we try to acquire them, then usually bad things happen to us. We get some form of a punishment from something if we try to do these things. And this is what creates the symbolic castration. It's the idea that, that you think you have the phallus, and then you realize that, that you don't. You've been castrated. The thing that castrates you uh, has been called a lot of different things, depending on which like period in Lacan you're reading. Um, I'm going to go with the name of the father, just to, to kind of keep yeah. things simple here. So the name of the father is, there's a figure, and it doesn't have to be a man at all. It could be anything. It could be anybody. It could be an institution. It could be grandma. It could be your dad. It could be your older sibling. Uh, somebody kind of basically steps in and basically makes it very clear that you, what you want, you're not getting it. And if you try to get it, they will overpower you and just make sure that you, you can keep on trying, but they're going to keep on stopping you. And they might even amp up the ways in which they stop you uh, to make it very clear to you. Don't try. You can't do that. This kind of gets tied into to developmental theory a lot, where the idea is that the the infant wants the mother, and that what the the name of the father does is is comes in between the infant and the mother and separates them and says like, no, you, you know, mom, you need to not go to the baby when it's crying, and and baby, you need to cry, and you're not getting your mom. And, and what this does is this kind of uh, initiates the the infant into the social order. It takes them out of the imaginary and into the symbolic ultimately right so uh that making sense to you alex yeah yeah no i'm I'm following i'm just like in my head i'm mulling over this like thing that original question that you presented where i'm kind of thinking like you know it sort of complicates the the typical relationship you know at least like the lacanian formulations of, of <coughs> sexuation of like sort of male like masculine versus feminine kind of idea with uh with the side of the left right like on the masculine side i feel like that's the general that's like the typical masculine attitude feeling like you control the phallus or feeling like you are in some position of of power authoritative power or at least like in look in like lacanian conception of masculinity right you find yourself in, in either pursuing or in the position of having the phallus right would would you say that's correct well, I don't think that anybody actually has it. That's that's one right. of the things here, right? So that's why I was so confused when you say you think that the right has the phallus. I was like, I, I don't think anyone thinks that, or if they do, they're very mistaken. And I think that that must be what you mean. So there's there, here. Uh, maybe it's easier to work from the left and then kind of go from the left to the right uh, here. So when I say that the left wants to be the phallus, what happens a lot of times is, and again, this is this is like high theory jargony. So sorry about that. Uh, there's this idea that the child wants to be the phallus for the mother. Okay. So the idea here is that the mother lacks the phallus. I will be the phallus that she lacks, which means that she'll want me, right? She'll want me as the missing object that will complete her ultimately. Right. The object of affection. Like, yeah. Uh, like I'm the baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that mom wants me. Uh, now this gets kind of blown out later on where, um, you know, there's this, this Lacanian aphorism that the, 
desire is always the desire of the other. You know, you could say the desire is always the desire of the mother. Uh, effectively, what that means is that the child tries to make him or herself into what it believes the mother wants them to be. And then if we take this out to like uh, out of the, the family drama, the family romance and, and out into like social big macro type stuff, uh, there's this idea, I think, that the left is trying to turn itself into an appealing, desirable, uh, socially conscious, social justice sort of thing that the other, that it believes that the other wants, right? So it's trying to be the thing that it thinks that the other wants it to be. It's trying to be the, the, the phallus that would complete the other. I would say that in comparison, what the right is doing is the right is like, we got the phallus. We're going to tell you, yes, we're going to tell you, no, you're limited. You can't do that shit. If you tried it, we're going to punish you. We're going to throw you in jail. We're going to use the death penalty. We're going to do all these different things here. They're, they're very um, able to do that. And so they, they actually do um, fulfill the function of the name of the father in a much more efficient way than people on the left do. On the left, there's a lot of like permissiveness. Anything goes. We wouldn't want to oppress anybody. We wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We wouldn't want to tell anybody no or that they're wrong or, or something like that. Where on the right, there is very little, it seems to me, compunction uh, of people doing those things. And this has effects, I would say, on, on politics. So that's sort of my, my quick version of it. So anybody wants to mm. tell me how wrong I am, I'm, I'm all ears. I, I was just going to mention, too, that I think that the point that Neil's discussing, too, about where the father steps in and basically like bars the mother from the child is also the sort of instantiation of the, of the phallus and the father, the name of the father, into law. So that's another really key thing. I think that we could also connect up with the right as sort of the relationship between that sort of barring function and being inscribed into the symbolic order and into the law itself. Like that's kind of what, what that represents to me, which I well, think is actually a really interesting thing to explore between the left-right divide, too. I, I wonder what it means to suggest that the the rights position is inscribed into law, because that makes me want to ask, uh, as opposed to what? Uh, like the nature, the, the function of reaction is to defend or return to existing or pr- previously existing uh, power structures. And it, something like what I'm hearing is uh, uh, about like the nature of this having the phallus versus wanting to be the phallus. Uh, dichotomy is is that the the right is in the position of having asserting and trying to maintain power whatever those given the uh, power structures may be that's and that's sort of inherent to the function of being conservative is trying to conserve the existing hierarchies the existing power structures the things that uh currently exist or used to exist and they want to return to uh, or imagine they want to return to where i'm I'm trying to imagine a some sort of legal system that would not have those things uh unified you know so there, it's interesting you say that, Kevin. So like uh, one of the, the reads here is that uh, there, there's different things that, that people can believe in. So when Adam brought this up, there's there's an idea of the law versus a law. Um, the idea here is that the social order, the symbolic order, that is is something that we can, I mean, you can you can codify it within legal systems and, and whatnot, but that that's never going to be the whole thing. There's always going to be custom and social stuff that doesn't actually get codified but there if you if you break those norms then you will find yourself ostracized you know ultimately right so there's this idea ultimately that there is something that is the law and when people are psychotic 
uh, one of the ways that they can manifest a psychosis is to say that they don't need to follow the law because they have a law that they follow, which is different than the law, um, ultimately. And I actually think that's something that the right does and the left does. They just have different versions of a law that they happen to believe are the better one, ultimately. Yeah. Right. I can see that. But the the idea here, you know, if you want to take the the theory, is that that both the right and the left are subjects to and subjects of the law, whether they like it or not, or whether they accept that or or reject it, they are subjects of it. Interesting. I I mean, I wanted to come back to something that that you guys are commenting on about the like the formation of the law. If I'm understanding correctly, it's that transition into the symbolic that you're saying is sort of the foundation for this, this like idea of like there being a, like a symbolic authority, right? Like the law as it, as it stands. Well, I also have just kind of maybe introduced the idea that, that, that possibly that transition into the symbolic is also what changes the stakes, so to speak of like what the phallus represents as a, it's like, it goes from being so like a, like a thing that you're, you're desiring because you want like love or because you want affection and it's st- and it starts being something that is like, like purely the source of your anxiety, right? Like it just becomes something that is like, uh, ne- never will fulfill you anymore. Once it like transitions into that state of being, it no longer has the potential for satisfaction anymore. And so then it's like the origin of anxiety. Right. Um, and so like, I wonder if that factors in like to what you're, what you're saying about the phallus and how it relates to the, to the right. Are you, are you, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? It, it does to me. Um, okay. I, but <laughs> and that's I'm just okay. like sitting here thinking about this shit. I'm just like, probably just, it sounds like complete nonsense coming out. The, like that. 95% of the conversation thus far. Uh, so like, this is my capacity to understand things. The 95% of the conversation is like up here. You can't see so, that on the, if you're yeah, listening, like, but I like that you it's lean way back. over my head. Yeah, <laughs> you had to move back. Purposely. I like that you lean back to make space for all the space above your head. So can I actually maybe sort of divert us slightly or, or kind of start with, uh, you know, just a Please. little fucking baby talk of Lacan? <laughs> okay, so, you know, I feel like I don't a know lot if of you times, guys know this about us, but we don't know anything about Lacan. Yo, <laughs> let's let's explain Lacan to fucking babies. Um, <laughs> no, I think it. <laughs> I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah, that is the states that we're operating here. So no, I think it might actually be interesting to maybe talk about like what are the states or what is the particular idea of pushing, like being able to look at something like left-right politics, right? Something that most people encounter and don't really think about it in terms of how psychoanalysis might shed light on certain things. So could we maybe like step back and say, here's what we hope this perspective will offer that maybe you're not encountering or isn't, isn't typically how people think about it. And maybe it will kind of help to just like orient us to say, this is why we're talking about it this way. That's fair. I think that makes sense. So I, I guess like the, in a different way of saying this then, right? Like it seems to me that what the left is doing is they're trying to make themselves desirable, right? They're, they're interested in that. They, they, they want mm-hmm. to be seen as egalitarian, pleasant, um, you know, wor- working in different ways. It, I'm somebody who is on the left. So my opinion is clearly biased here. I don't think that people on the right necessarily give a fuck if people like them, right? In fact, sometimes I even get the impression that they enjoy the people disliking them to a fairly excessive degree. And, and, oh, yeah. and that's the difference that I'm finding here, right? Like if you are on the right and you're not worried about offending people, you're not worried about getting canceled. You're not worried about, um, you know, if people are going to 
take issue with the particular way that you describe a phenomenon, you just talk, you know, and you feel really justified as you do. So you're, you're telling people what you think and if they don't like it, whatever, where people I think on the left have a, a different way of looking at this. They're like, Oh, I really, I really want to win people over. You know, I really want to, I want them to get it. I want them to understand. I want to, I want to kind of like win the heart and mind of, of my interlocutor and get them to understand that, you know, socialism offers them something which is perhaps better than what they currently have. And, and I, I really want to buy in, you know, and, and this is different. And so there's a lot more cautiousness and, and really kind of trying to get the people to buy into you where on the right, it, the, the buy-in is like, if you don't buy in, whatever, we, we will just do it without you. And, and therein lies the big difference. And that's why I'm saying that the right is operating, I guess, under the assumption that they have something, they have power. They have the ability to just like speak what they want to speak. And if you don't like it, they don't care. Where on the left, I think there's this idea of wanting to be the thing that will kind of like entice people. And that, that totally, I think, changes the ways in which the left goes about attempting to communicate with themselves and with not the left in the same way. I would say I agree with that. But I would also add that in addition to wanting to win people over a big feature of communication on the left is being liked and a, and a and a fear of being like you said that people on the right aren't worried about being canceled and i think people on the left are so it's not just yeah. like i want to win people over but in the process of doing so i'm terrified of uh getting cut out by doing it wrong or doing it in a way which like steps on toes and offends sensibilities so i think it's actually like a it's a double bind that is lacking in both aspects generally speaking on the right yeah i was i was gonna add like maybe that because i mean i'm agreeing like in theory with what you're saying about the left versus right distinction here neil but i'm also thinking of myself and how uh there are certain times where i just i'm definitely on the left but like i just like could not care less if somebody doesn't like what i say <laughs> so like maybe i'm just like uh not a typical leftist subject but like at the same time i just wonder if maybe there's an aspect to being liked that in itself just sort of engenders being disliked as well, that there's not really like a universal version of being liked. And so I guess my follow-up question or like where I'm leading to with this is like, being that this is the kind of distinction that you're drawing between left and right, that this is like the potential that the right has is like this sort of um, devil may care attitude of like, I'm, I'm just going to say what I think and who cares who it offends and all of that. And the left is so much more concerned with, um, trying to develop a certain understanding or, or trying to come off as being liked or as uh, being more fully representative of, of who they're speaking to or, or whatever that might be. I guess my question is, don't you think the left needs a little more of that phallus <laughs> like, in, in their discourse rather than maybe um, trying to yeah be so accommodating all of the time? Maybe if they were just um, a little bit more, you know, decisive, uh, there would be there would be more people willing to transition over from the side that's just like crass, you know, into something a little bit more acceptable, you know, socially or in this sort of progressive mindset, but like um, that has a little bit more oomph behind it and doesn't seem so accommodating to everything. So this is, there's, there's two figures on the left that I think do what you're saying, Alex, right? So one is Zizek, right? Like, cause he, I think is one of those people on the left who has a, a affected, <laughs> he has left-wing ideas and left-wing uh, things that he's pursuing, but he's doing it in what I would call like a, the, the right-wing fashion that I've described a little bit ago. The other person is Bernie Sanders. I, I don't think that Bernie cares about being liked. He, he's like, I am right. <laughs> I, I have an idea. This is my idea. 
I will say it. It will not play well with a huge portion of the American electorate, and I'm good with that. Uh, there's not a lot of that on the left. Would it be great, in my opinion, if we had more of that? I think it would. Okay. Right. I think it would, and it's also like we know – well, we don't know, but I think we can reasonably presume – that there isn't going to be a more accommodating, inclusive, patient version of the right that will ever uh, come to the fore, which means that there is almost an obligation, if only in order to be able to like properly square off against an opponent, shore up the other side. Like I don't obviously I maybe it's not obvious. I would never want to make an argument against being patient and inclusive. On the other hand, I would very much want to make a strong argument for figuring out how to be aggressive and transgressive at the same time, right? Because you don't go into combat playing defense. You go into combat with the assumption that like an effective defense means that at some point you get to go on the offensive. And I don't know, I look around and I feel like we're not very good at that. With the exceptions, right? Like I think one of the reasons why Sanders made uh, inroads across, why Sanders wasn't a liberal, right? <laughs> or didn't only appeal to people who agreed with like every single thing he had to say because they agreed with they respected him they thought certain aspects of what he had to say was compelling and because he was you know a no-nonsense figure and it's amazing actually how few of those there are that they appeal to everybody whenever they come out or they don't appeal to everybody they appeal to every kind of person when they make themselves known i mean one other thing i'm wondering as well is how much on the left is one of the short circuits around that development of a more aggressive, transgressive sort of, you know, I have the phallus kind of perspective is because in a lot of ways, what dominates a lot of leftist discourse, and, and I'm just going to say this, that whenever I say leftist discourse, this very well could just be mostly on Twitter, like Facebook, on social media sorts of platforms, and maybe in very isolated sorts of groups with people who have already drunk their Kool-Aid. You know, I mean, if I think about like people from back home who, you know, are all like, like hardcore working class people and have been that way their whole life. I feel like if I, whenever I talk to them, they are also very supportive of quote unquote, like left-wing ideas. And I'll even like kind of frame them as explicitly socialists or communists. But I mean, how much do you think this is a, a sort of shift in kind of the larger background towards leftists being very captured by the idea that social capital is actually what we're all sort of like participating in this economy of if I say the right things, I do the right things, I present myself the right way, um, you know, I am like inclusive or hold certain values that it's this sort of like, I don't have real capital, but social capital is dematerialized. It is virtual. It's something that we can all participate in through this sort of economy of speech and feeling with each other in certain ways. I'm not even saying that's like all bad, but I think this is a really yeah. crucial aspect that has to be grappled with seriously about like, what is it that is sort of structuring the left's participation in this way? Well, it's definitely, I, I think it's indisputably that, that there's, there's some, some level of just, I don't know, like a drowning person is just flailing around and grabs onto whatever thing they can grab onto to yank themselves up. Somebody without power it just sort of flails around until they grab something that responds to them. And they're like, Oh, this, this is the thing that gives me some power. And Oh, I can lift myself up a little bit here. Uh, I think a lot of the left is like the project of the left is to empower the powerless. Uh, and so it, it, there's, there's some degree of this that's inherent in the project of uh, going to the powerless and saying here, <laughs> we want you to have some power. And so, you know, uh, you're going to get some bit of, people flailing around and just latching onto the thing that gets them, gives them some amount of power. But that, 
makes me question the, like, what is it? What I'm thinking about is like, uh, what are the particular oddities of American culture that puts us in the, in the exact position that we're in, where I look around the left and I see American Puritanism grafted onto uh, liberal value. Like, how did that transition come from uh, American Puritanism being a, a reactionary uh, ideology to being the, the, the primary ideology of the left? Whereas you look at the right and it's, you know, it's nowadays, at least um, since, you know, the, I don't know, the last 20 years or so, it's, it's the Donald Trump, it's, le- it's the right of the Donald Trump, the devil may care, fuck you and, the, and uh, everyone you came in with, I'm going to get me and mine. Uh, I guess it's the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, the neoliberal era really bequeathed us the Donald Trumps of the world. But how did the left become the Puritans? And what and what relation does that have to the phallus? <laughs> Ooh, that's an interesting question. It, it, well, we've been reading McCare here and talking about Puritanism, so maybe we have some kind of historical basis to try to grapple with this question. I assume that in our continued research into what McCarriher has to say about the uh, sacralization of capitalism as the, uh, you know, the religion of uh, modernity that we're going to find that the, and I already know this to be true, but I imagine we're going to talk about this in more depth that we're going to find that progressivism and liberal and what we know of as like modern liberal causes come directly out of evangelical churches and with it comes the mindset of the, the holdover of Puritanism and the holdover of that very, very Protestant idea of faith being what matters and making sure you have the right ideas being what matters more so than like an orthopraxis, like a doing the faith that matters, you know, um, so that you're always looking for uh, secret signs that you don't actually have the faith, mm. you know. And if you have that, this, that, that Puritan idea that you're only truly saved and you're only truly one of the elect if you live a Christ-like life, carries over into the progressive movement and into liberalism and into the left as, in the same way. You're only a true leftist if you live a left-like life. Like, do you actually believe the things that you say you do or are you a crypto-fash, you know? Um, yeah. I think it carries over in that way. I think it effectively carries over or it, it becomes, I, I think it prevails, right? It becomes dominant because of the crisis of, of organized labor and its relationship to socialism. There's a, there's a long crisis, a generational crisis where like the materialist side of what it means to be on the left in the broadest way you can understand it. I don't even just mean like people who are Marxists, but like, you know, there's a, there's a kind of left that is, involved in the civil rights movement, which is a Christian left or is a democratic socialist left or whatever, but still recognizes the necessity of head first confrontation with the powers of the state and with working with people who um, like the, the, you know, might not have purged every prejudice from their mind, but might still see a value in a, a collective self-interest in the advance of your self-interest or whatever. And there's this breakdown that happens over the course of, I mean, Kevin, you kind of put a date on it, right? And it's around the what we call the neoliberal era is that facet of what it means to be on the left just starts to crumble. The other one is just left 
standing. And so it becomes hegemonic or becomes more predominant. Um, and then it gets repackaged. Yeah, it gets repackaged as being like that is the Marxist understanding of things now. So in a way, when somebody like Jordan Peterson talks about postmodern neo-Marxists, he's more right than he knows, but not for the reasons he thinks. <laughs> I was, I was going to branch off of something Chris was saying as well that like, you know, I mean, that, that was a very interesting way of taking it. I was just like talking back about like Puritanism, kind of like what Kevin was saying. Puritanism, as I understand, because I'm not like a religious scholar necessarily, but just my basic understanding was that there was like this, just like hope of like separating completely from Catholicism and changing all of the ritual structures to try to like, you know, separate themselves from a certain version of what they saw as like the wrong kind of faith. Right. Which I mean, a lot of I guess like a lot of religious movements are like in this vein, but like just in terms of contemporary leftist uh, politics or like, you know, sort of liberal politics, I guess you could call it um, and what we're seeing on the left today of like this sort of puritanism that's developing now. Maybe it was it's a desperate attempt to cling to the capitalism, which we might call like the faith, um, like Chris was saying, of of, of our, our day. Yeah, today. We might call it that. <laughs> the thing we might say we all have faith in or whatever. Um, I'm reading a thousand page book that makes an argument that that is actually what, what is going on. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for those readings. I'm catching up on y'all. And yeah, I'm sorry. It's communicated from red, red library. If you don't show up for the next one, I'm just saying, <laughs> okay. I want right. it registered. I'll, I'll in the record. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but we're uh, excommunicating you like papal style though. Not like Puritan stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay good but uh so yeah just basically that there's like this desperate attempt being made to like save capitalism but you know by desperately like changing all of the uh all of the rituals and and divorcing ourselves from like the old guard uh the old ways of like uh worship and like the sort of things that we see as, as like corrupt right like trying to pull something usable in capitalism out of like the transition away from the evils of capitalism Right. Um, I don't know. You know, this is I feel like what the Nazis were trying to do, too. But but I don't know. That's that's just me. I would say that there's something to that. Yeah. And I think that it's been an active project on the part of liberalism to adopt a lot of very radical rhetoric. And uh, because they know that they can have a woke capitalism and it will survive, but they cannot address the class issues or it will not. Well, and isn't some defining feature of quote unquote will capitalism that the the compromise that's being made is we'll give you social capital in lieu of actual capital and the means yeah, of production? Exactly. I mean that's I mean, that's the trade off. I I don't know if that's entirely true. I, I because there are like Oprah Winfrey uh is a like one of the richest people in the world. There's a, there are a number there are particular individuals who are sort of like plucked out of the ranks of oppressed classes who benefit from who very concretely, materially, not just culturally, but in very real capital terms, benefit from woke capitalism. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it's entirely true that it's just an exchange. Well, well I think this is a good point to bring up. So maybe a, a better way to say this is that yes, there are certain figures that get incorporated into the capitalist order that are plucked from particularly oppressed, marginalized groups, right? That aren't represented. They're plucked, but I think the the compromise is that, for example, McDonald's will, you know, have like a BLM theme on their Twitter, right? Or, or that you'll get certain films that will be representing like your particular group, like your racial, cultural group, your gender identity. 
I think that's that's maybe the thing I'm throwing out is like for for the most of us, for 99.9% of all people, you aren't getting plucked out and you aren't going to be plucked out and given a special status in the capitalist order. You're getting some sort of like mediated cultural representation or media representation that's going to make you feel that you have some incorporation into the order in symbol only or in like representation only. I would say that like a we've seen the largest decrease in black wealth in this country over the past 20 years. Uh, in, I mean, we've seen, I don't know if we've seen the largest decrease. Uh, we've seen an enormous decrease in black wealth in this country over the past 20 years. It is not keeping up with cultural representation in film and art and whatever else, you know? Um, and yeah, there are some very rich, famous black people. And we had a black president, of course, uh, but that, that's just kind of an example. It's like the uh, this cultural representation and all this cultural capital that's being earned is going one way and inversely proportionate to that is black wealth. You know what I mean? I think what I would like, like to put forward is also that I, d- I, d- I don't think it's necessarily deliberate even. It's deliberate, but I don't think it's necessarily cynical. Like I actually think that like in some cases, like when McDonald's puts in their, uh, in their banner, like amplifying black voices, like that's, that's cynical. Yes, but I, but I think I actually think that um, that a lot of what we're seeing that we could call like that that we could call aspects of woke capitalism are the actual expressed intentions of liberal sections of the capitalist class. Like there are there are people who think that it matters, and and it's a the reason why there can be a woke capitalism is not it's not just to like distract from the bread and butter gains and some kind of like, you know, bad guys in the uh, power room doing, pressing the manipulation button. But it's actually that it is a thing which can be incorporated and thus will be. It's also that though. I mean, it's both, right? Like it's, (laughs) well, it it goes back to that longer discussion that I think is going to be perennial uh, among, among all of our crew about, about recuperation and to what extent is it a a deliberate conscious like decision to co-opt and, and to what extent is it just a thing which can be and thus will be by virtue of like many organic processes incorporated into the way, into the superstructure, into the way that things are just thought of and expressed. And I think the fact that there are liberal capitalists who uh, think that it, it is significant that their company, you know, uh, flies a rainbow flag during Pride Month. It's not just that, oh, I'll do this instead of giving a raise. It's that I'll do this because it's important. But giving a raise affects me. And so I won't do that. So there's no there's no contrast in their mind uh, on the part of the liberal capitalist. So I think that there's a distinction to be made. I think it's 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 not just cynical. It's also it's the best intentions of the worst people. There's something in this though too that I think is is vital to understand. So the right has gets enjoys kind of saying you're in and you're out. I, I think this is one of the things that makes them what they are. If you if you believe this, then you're good. And if you disagree with it or don't buy into it, then you're, you're bad. Uh, and it, it creates these, these um, dichotomies. It creates these, in my mind, very rigid in-group, out-group kinds of things. Uh, you know, it's like the Carl Schmitt sort of uh, operating in, in the day-to-day. What I think woke capitalism is, is what happens when the left actually adopts the same sort of system of enjoyment, same system of jouissance that exists on the right. Because woke capitalism, in my mind, is very much about deciding who's woke, who's in, who's enlightened, you know, who knows what's up, 
because they say and do what is uh, said to be the correct things. And if you don't, then you're out. If you reflect or, or go through some sort of, of process of recuperation yourself, then we might, you can apply and maybe we'll, we'll let you back in if you've, if you, you perform uh, enough sort of like Moet Copas, uh, you, you, then maybe you're back in here. And I mean, I, I think that it's around different topics, mind you, right? It's not the same sort of uh, things uh, that, that are doing this. But the, if we look at this kind of like functionally, I think we see the same thing playing itself out in both camps. There is a good and there is a bad. You want to be in with the good. You're in with the good by following the rules and you get to then have the belonging that comes along with this. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, I think, you know, belonging gone wrong. And if you don't, then you don't belong. You're on the outs. You're exiled. You're, you're, you don't get to exist in the polis anymore. You have to go outside of that uh, ultimately, right? But it, and again, I, I'm kind of belaboring the point here. I see the same thing happening, which is an enjoyment of exclusion. Well, I just want to ask really quick, because whenever I think about, let's say, just basic Marxist understandings of how capitalism functions, isn't the whole point of a Marxist perspective is that it is operating based on a particular kind of logic that is not collapsible to the intentions of individuals or even groups, and 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 the idea, whenever I think about world capitalism, like I, I mean, I'll just say this: I think there's absolutely certain positive aspects and really important aspects about being represented more fully in cultural representations. I mean, this is a discussion we've had on the Discord a little bit. I think it's important to to just recognize, like for certain groups, like yeah, that is like a really powerful thing. My critique of world capitalism isn't so much like that's like not the point or it's distracting us. I mean, I think it could be, but to me, it's the idea that there's a bigger logic at play that once you sort of move into this discussion about political economy, you're now talking about large sets of globalized, you know, markets and the the laws and like the tendencies in which those operate and how certain things are happening and functioning that are outside or sort of eclipsing your own understanding of what your role is in those things and like how you're participating in them. And so, I mean, my thing about world capitalism is that it's almost like, yeah, like it's important to recognize that like maybe there are some aspects of like representation that are really important. It's the fact that that gets, again, like not like recuperate, I mean, maybe recuperated, but it's the idea that, but like placed into this larger political economic structure, it functions in a way that is sort of, is not what it appears. And to me, that's what like part of the basic Marxist methodology is. It's like things appear to you in a certain way in the social realm, in the market, right? You walk into the market and you think what you're doing is just exchanging money for a commodity. What is obscured from you is the place of production, right? It's all this like violence and exploitation and the brutality of the system that obscure that is obscured from you precisely to make that thing, that appearance continue functioning. And so to me, I think we have to think about it you know, for at least, you know, for me, like calling myself a Marxist of some order to say that we have to talk about this way that appearance and what is really happening and how underneath the appearance there's something that's being occluded from us and how this is functioning and what laws it's operating on. And the buyer and the seller in the market are both beholden to those laws. I mean, to me, that's that's basic Marxism is that like the capitalists themselves are dehumanized and subjected to this system in a way that they're not even really aware of. So, I would want to talk about it more about those laws and that sort of functioning that is not really what we think it is, or there's something about it that's obscured from us. And maybe that's a, that's where people write books and shit about it. But to me, I, I want to think about it that way. 
I think the thing that's being obscured a lot of times though too, and, and I, I might be alone on this is that there's an, a different economy operating here and it's an economy of enjoyment. And that what, what you're seeing happen there is that people are they're, they're I'm air quoting here, buying something through doing something and what they're, they're getting is the enjoyment here. And, and I don't think that that's the thing that people are very aware of. I don't know. Like, I mean, I teach in a, a university in a school of social work. And I have listened to social workers say, how dare counselors try to make themselves able to bill Medicaid? They don't have the understanding of social justice necessary to bill Medicaid. We should be the only ones allowed to bill Medicaid. We need to exclude those counselors from doing that. What this ultimately does is mean that there's less mental health professionals available to people, right? And, and so here's a, a group that's, that's, you know, on a conscious level saying we're all about trying to help people get what they need. Uh, if they don't have what we want them to have, but we want to help them get it. Well, here's a group that's like, hey, we'd like to join you in that 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 fight. Can we do that? And we're like, no, no, no. You don't know enough about social justice to get in on that action. No way. Right? And there's an exclusion there. And there's an enjoyment in the exclusion. And I think that's the thing that gets obscured so very often is the the enjoyment that comes along with saying, and I see this on the left a lot, right? Like the the essentially not being woke enough, not being left enough, not being Marxist enough, not being Leninist enough. What? Take your pick. You know, there, there's something. Yeah. And then there's that, that, that what's going on there. And what I really want to focus on myself anyways, is the enjoyment, the, the like, yeah, I'm, I'm saying you're not in, you don't know there's, enough. There's something to that. But I also think that like, there is a whole tendency of like, profitability to decrease once the product becomes more widely available that is being protected as well you know sure so but that's not the argument they're making right it's not the argument they're making but it might be the real reason behind it i don't know you see i I don't know what it is i don't know if it's conscious but it's definitely a real factor Mm -hmm. function Um, versus intention sort of a question you're raising there yeah it's saying to the people who are like they don't know enough about social justice it's it's asking them well what do you know about social justice if you you want to claim to maybe okay like let's let's hear it and they don't know anything either right and this is the thing here this actually isn't about knowledge of social justice it's about wanting to be able to have the ability to do something and say you can't do this thing that i can do and, and i mean it comes from an inferiority complex that i mean this is this is partisan but that social workers have i think that they they have a chip on their shoulder because they're not psychiatrists <laughs> and they're not you know medical doctors or, or whatever and then they're like oh there's somebody who we can be better than like we're gonna totally enjoy being better than them in that one thing i don't know like i i, I really believe that this would be something that would be important to examine you know what i mean the the payout of, of enjoyment that people get from the things that they enjoy and it requires i think to do that you know like a, a really i think um high level of of honesty with you know, oneself to the extent that you can do that, but also with each other. And this is one of the things that, again, I, I just don't see this happening as much as I would like it to happen within the leftist circles that I happen to be the most involved with. There's this sort of, uh, I, I guess it's like fear maybe, or or they just don't want to upset anybody. And and that might mean I don't want to tell you, you know what I mean, that you're you're kind of getting off on excluding whoever right now. And maybe that's not what you want to do. Like maybe you want to let them talk a little bit and, and before you decide if you're, you're going to exclude them. There are reasons to exclude people. I, I don't want to say that like that's, that's not accurate because I, I think there are times where that does need to happen. 
but I think we should really try to understand to the extent that we can the effect of the enjoyment that comes along with that exclusion when we engage in it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe part of what we're fleshing out is that there is an economy of enjoyment and then there is like political economy and those two things interact in a particular way which isn't typically recognized or thought about. So a lot of Marxists or leftists will think that they're engaging in a sort of political economic approach or talking about social justice without realizing that there's another unconscious economy that's at play that is also operating, which can subvert and shape that in different ways. I'll buy that. Word. Taken in isolation, I have been sympathetic to the argument that the enjoyment of exclusion, of seeking out and exposing, you know, the posers or whatever on the left is just purely a function of powerlessness it's the psychological expression of powerlessness in, a, in an attempt to have some control over something, even if it's only the gate into the tiny community so that you can keep the gate. And so you, you can defend your favored conception of the thing, even if it became what it purported to want to be, which is mass and popular, you would lose control over it. It's an individuated powerlessness, but that it has a like broader collective form or expression. But I also think that that's really simplistic because as as this discussion has shown it it doesn't just exist in like sect life and heresy hunting and you know defending the the really cool subculture of being you know uh on the left or whatever it actually exists in much broader ways that are a lot more complicated and more interesting much more interesting and complex than that comrades <laughs> it is kind of fun to just exclude people though you know i mean i was punk <laughs> i remember that that's the point though it is fun yeah, that, yeah. That's the thing that I'm trying to say here. And yeah, that's yeah. what I mean, makes I'm, it I'm so agreeing. dangerous. Yeah. Is that it, when you do it, it feels good. And this is, again, like kind of going way back to one of the things that I guess I, I tried to start with here. The right is very clear about this, right? Like they're like, we like excluding people. We're getting, we're having a great time doing this. It's fun. We're going to keep doing it. <laughs> Where I think on the left, there's this idea that they don't enjoy excluding people when in fact they do oh they fucking love it <laughs> yeah it's their favorite shit have y'all ever seen the movie the good shepherd oh yeah i was just thinking about this since we're we just are doing our guatemala episodes about the cia so there's this interaction between two characters and one of them i i can't uh can't quote verbatim because it's deeply problematic but he essentially says you know like this ethnic group has their music and this ethnic group has their food and we, you know, Italians, we have our family. And then he gestures to the like wasp and he's like, and you, what have you got? And his response is the United States of America, the rest of you are just visiting. And to me, that's like the perfect encapsulation of like at least classical right-wing ideology. It's like, I have this to the exclusion of everyone. Like, fuck all of you. This is my country. It's my whatever, you know? Um, and that the the way that that is institutionalized is in halls of power. It's in corporate boardrooms and whatever. And uh, if you listen to people like today's leading lights of the, you know the the hardest right edge of the conservative movement in this country, they still talk like that, and they don't they don't care about not sounding woke. They don't care about sounding problematic or whatever. They're or even sounding like hate mongers. And there is a, some serious pride in like announcing to the world that like. My conception of this country is that it's for me and it's not for you. It's emboldening, you know? Definitely emboldening. Maybe it's so emboldening that I, I, it bleeds over well into the not hardest right edge. 
into the just like generic sense of patriotism that Americans feel of like, I belong to this thing that is great and mighty and powerful and good and right and proper and everyone else uh, out there. There's a, I don't know, a thin blue line protecting us from the criminal element within. There's a thin, I don't know, whatever the fuck color the border is, line that is protecting us from the the infiltrator from without. Uh, But there, there is this inclusion of a patriotism that is uh, American good, uh, not American bad, that I think that just even the most generic average person who doesn't give a shit about anything politically, doesn't have any political affiliation, responds to libidinally. Yeah, they do think that connects to the general powerlessness that the average person feels. Like, I think yeah. part of the reason why it feels good to exclude anyone is because... What other control do you have over your own, you know, your life other than to decide who you don't want to associate with? I think that's um, what I'm trying to, to dialectically dive into though, too, right? Like yeah. there's, there's, there's a contradiction here, right? The left is like, we are about inclusion, but we will exclude anybody who isn't about the inclusion that we're about, which... Or even just not about the inclusion we're about in the way that we have previously decided it, or we have just currently decided is the right way to do it. Yeah, your vision of inclusion isn't quite the same as mine. So fuck off. And I want to yeah. explore that contradiction. I want to. I want to. I want to do the dialectic. You know, like like dive in to the contradiction. Don't mm-hmm. don't shy away from it, and be like, ah, oh, that's that's. No, I don't like that. Like, no, like I I don't like it. But that's one of the reasons why I want to go into it so damn much. I would like Fucking to be full steam ahead. Let's do it. I would like to be good at things instead of bad at things. I would like to do the things I love and not the things I hate, which I constantly do. That should be on my business card. <laughs> St. <Saint> Paul. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was about to ask you, Chris. I assume that's from uh, a specific, that's a specific reference, not you're just pulling that out of your ass. No. So, Neil, the problem is you have I'm here identified... here to drop the Bible bombs. <laughs> Neil, the problem is you've identified one of the, the most critical issues and under-theorized... Uh, problems facing us today and i don't think any of us know how to address it i don't know how to address even the most over theorized problems facing <laughs> us today. <laughs> actually makes it harder sometimes i, I think yeah. you started to though jason when you were saying that this is you know the the psychological effects of powerlessness so i i think there's something there um my my thought is that there's if i look at this psychoanalytically and i were to say that that like wokeness for example um there could be a lot of things i'll just pick on that i guess is a symptom it, when you go through a psychoanalytic process one of the things that can happen is that you identify you're, you're you're implicated in your symptom and you're implicated in the enjoyment of your symptom you know it's not that this symptom is something that's happening to you and torturing you and you hate it there's actually a, a level of enjoyment within the symptom for you and you're that, that's made rather clear if the analysis works when that happens, what, what you can do is you kind of like tear down the symptom. Now, when you tear it down, the material of the symptom, it's still there. You can't like get rid of it. It takes up space in your psyche. You can't just like evaporate it into to the thin air. Um, and you kind of like strip it down to the foundations. What that means is that you're probably always going to grapple with that problematic. You're probably always going to have that symptom have some form of effect on your life, but it might, you might change your relationship to it in a significant way. And that's the, the what I would call a transformation of a, a symptom to a symptom. And, and it's understanding that this is, this is something that you do. This is something that you enjoy. And because it's something that you do and you enjoy, and you're much more aware of it, you desire now to not do it in the same way that you did. 
you have a desire to to fail better in a sense and i think that that's that's what what i would like to see happen you know broadly and on, on the left right now is is the ability to to go like okay we've been doing this we've been enjoying this we want to we probably always will because exclusion is fun but is there a way that we could change our relationship to that in the way that we enjoy it that sounds incredibly useful i yeah i wish everybody could sit through a big giant fucking uh group therapy session <laughs> All right, the left needs to shit. get online for a group therapy Zoom call with Neil. Get the left hey, on. Hey, hey, the left. Hey, the left. We need you to uh we'll send out a link on Discord. <laughs> no, no, but Neil, I have like a serious question though. So I have cuz I'm still hung up on your like original question from the very beginning of all of this. Um the one about dicks. Yeah, the one about dicks. <laughs> This session has been way too serious, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, we're all just like sitting here somberly staring at each other like, oh, yeah, what are we going to do about the left, you guys? Shit. Flip the phallus back out. Let's 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 flip out the big peen and let's talk about the phallus real quick. Summon the ghost of Bill Hicks to make a big purple vein dick joke. Is Jason frozen or is he actually just a zombie that doesn't think anything is funny? I think both of those things may be true at the same time. He's not blinking, so I'm assuming he's frozen, or he's just like frozen his screen while he's doing something more interesting. Um, So uh, he's gone. Never mind. There's your answer. We lost him. (laughs) We said dicks, and he just he just vanished. Um, Oh, I hate dicks. (laughs) Dicks suck. Oh, he's back. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so I was about to talk about dicks, Jason. So I'm I'm trying to get to the point here, and the point that I'm making is that for Neil, the right thinks that they have the phallus and that the left wants to be the phallus. And so that still has me kind of torn, right? Because on the one hand, in a, in a diagnostic way, right, I'm thinking about on the right, what you're basically talking about is like a psychotic discourse, right? Like someone who excludes uh, the other from the jouissance, right? And so they kind of like assume that they have the the decision-making power to like tell us who's in and who's out, right? Because they're not taking the perspective that anybody else has access to the truth. They have the assumption that they have the whole truth and that they have to enact it or they they want confirmation that they're enacting it correctly, right? And so they're doing this by like, by their process of like inclusion and exclusion, right? And that's like their way of saying like, aren't I doing it right? But then you're saying something very different about the left, or at least this is my my picture of like what what you've you've put forward right on on the left what you're trying to say is almost more of like a well this is where I'm torn right so I, I'm I'm confused as to whether you're explaining the left and this phenomena of like them also having the jouissance in uh, sort of the exclusionary idea like them kind of like saying you get to be in you get to be out and sort of developing a parallel structure of sort of psychotic discourse. Um, I'm wondering if that's something that you're trying to say is maybe they have they have established the wrong pattern of authority or the wrong pattern or the wrong understanding for what what authority looks like. And so they're like falsely or uh, maybe unintentionally repeating the mistakes of the right that actually has the the sort of phallic uh, power. Or if maybe what you're trying to suggest is that they're just of a completely different brand and what they're actually doing is kind of making themselves the instrument of the desire of the right and like sort of taking on that sort of like perverted more perverted discourse and so like i'm just trying to clarify for you i know that that probably went over (laughs) most of you guys's heads or maybe if you followed 
awesome and please comment, but like I can explain more. I just also want to get like clarification from Neil himself because I want to be able to think through what Neil is trying to say too. I'm going to try to give you an example that, that I, that might make it more clear. All right. So uh, a lot of times, you know, patients will come to me. And one of the reasons that many people come to a therapist or a psychoanalyst is because they're having trouble in their love life, right? This is a really common thing. I have, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, love and work, right. Is what Freud said. This brings people, you know, in sex and money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We can say that too. Um, so here's the deal. Like I've seen some people and they basically, you know, tell me their, their relational pattern. And what they're saying is I met somebody. They're great. They're so awesome. I really want this person to like me. I really want to date this person. I really think that like it could work. And then what they do is they, they consistently attempt to make themselves into what they believe this partner wants them to be. That is being the phallus, right? Trying to make yourself into what you think the other desires you to be. And uh, if we were to look at it from a developmental lens, it's, it's the child who tries to turn him or herself into the kind of child that it believes that its parent wants it to be. Right, my parent wants me to be this way, so I will work very hard to to be that thing. And it's like the the parent wants the child to be something that they they can't be, like a, a future version of themselves or or something like that. Right, so that's that's the being that I'm describing. There's other people who will come in, and what will happen a lot of times is they will be exceptionally decisive, and they will say things to their partners like, "This isn't going to happen. Like, you want me to do that? I'm not going to do that." It's not going to, you can do it if you want to. I'm not going to do it. Um, you, you can do whatever you want. That's having the phallus. Uh, and other times where I, I kind of like see this maybe come in is, is with parenting. There are some parents who I think uh, are trying to, to be very permissive and very like, we don't, we don't want to, you know, stifle our child or make them think that we don't love them or make them think that they're not cool or something like that. And so kind of like any there that's, that's again, it's trying to be the phallus where other parents will kind of come in and they'll be like to, to their kid, they'll be like, you want to do what? No, you can't do that. And if the kid goes, this isn't fair, they're just kind of like, uh-huh, you can think that. <laughs> and and they're, they're very decisive about that because they think they have something and they're not worried about not having it <laughs> or not being it, right? They, they, they're like, we got it. And so I guess when I brought that up originally, I was just trying to it was one way to think about one of the ways that I'm seeing the distinction between the right and the left now is, is that the right seems to think that they, they make like a, this idea of, they talk about entitlement programs. You're not, you shouldn't be entitled to things. Entitlements. What, who, what do you think you're doing here? You're not entitled to a damn thing. You earn shit and you didn't earn it. So you don't got it. Right. And they're, they're very clear about doing this. We're on the left. I think they will want to, him and haw and debates and and do things almost endlessly but not actually make any decisions you know about say entitlement programs or or whatever so i don't know if that makes it any more clear or not well i just wanted to say that uh neil you're making me work through my own shit in a in a lot of ways through through this like talk of the right and left that's like making a very uh, real like oh that's that's what I needed to learn out of therapy that I never, never actually learned before. Makes uh, it's it's difficult, but uh, thank you. I kind of feel like these uh, episodes are like group therapy for our network with Neil as our <laughs> our analyst. 
Group group analysis. There we go. He's just rolling out that gold, just rolling it out, you know, yeah. for everybody. I was going to make a, a comparison, Neil, uh, apropos of a uh, discussion that Adam and I and Don had on our uh, Patreon-only episode uh, last night. about uh, <laughs> It's about the Batman trilogy, the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman trilogy. And uh, <laughs> it's actually different uh, than the conclusion or the thing that we were discussing yesterday. But it, I think maybe it, it uh, stands to your point. It's basically like in, in discussing, because I mean... Maybe here what we could say is like Batman himself in the in the trilogy, especially in particular in the second movie where he faces off with the Joker, is like struggling with this idea of vigilantism and whether or not it's still justified for him to like subvert the law and like do all of these like sort of undercover things and still, uh, you know, in order to catch the bad guys, of course. But, you know, he still he struggles with this idea of like having the master of or sort of like this this discourse of justice above him, this ideal that he's trying to like live up to and like not being able to like be sure if he's really living up to it or not, right? Versus mainly he's he's fighting against the Joker and the Joker's like whole thing in that movie is that he's just like an agent of chaos, right? And so the Joker has just no fidelity to any kind of philosophy other than just like direct chaos. And so therefore the Joker becomes like this strange double for Batman or like this strange character where he feels sort of castrated by, or maybe like emasculated by in some way where like he seeing in Joker, well, I mean, maybe it's, it's the truth of what's going on, but like Joker is just completely free of any ideological hangups, right? He's able to ruthlessly manipulate and outpace all of the people trying to stop him because he's able to rely on their both humanity and their emphasis on the idea of justice and sort of like stay a step ahead of all of them because he has this like anarchic chaotic uh philosophy and then batman is like you know deeply it's almost like it makes perfect sense for joker to be the main batman villain right because he kind of has that similarity to batman except without the hang-ups of like what it means to really promote justice and like what it, what it really means to be a, a just vigilante and, and all these things. So anyway, I, I, I don't know, maybe this is making the opposite argument that we were making yesterday on the patronet, but like, I think that it kind of fits in with what you were just talking about of sort of being able to be in the position of the phallus, like, like Joker might be right where he just kind of just ruthlessly goes out and does whatever it is that he needs to do to accomplish his plan, um, regardless of who he screws over, whatever, and sort of being in the in the in the the opposite position, or what like what you're saying is the position of the left now, which would be kind of like the Batman position of like constantly struggling with this sense of responsibility and like how you're being perceived, and like you know sort of that more uh, neurotic discourse maybe than one of like I don't know psychopathy. I, I, I think I the left is more Harvey Dent in in that film than who who is wait what who is more Harvey Dent Harvey Dent. Harvey the, the left. Uh, it's what I, ah, the left is more like Harvey Dent. Okay. Yeah, he wants to be liked. He wants to. He's a the golden boy. <laughs> he's the white knight, right? And, and you kind of see what that does to him, too. Right, but now now that they've lost their lover, they're just like hell bent on like nothing but just vengeance. Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. Like, uh, it, for, there was a time in my least. life. I was going to say like that's that's a really good <laughs> that's really good for the modern left is there. We're we're the in the two faced phase of Harvey Dent's career. <laughs> there you go, hey. nailed it. Yeah. So you mean the prime of his career is what I'm <laughs> <laughs> okay. the Mad Eye Mooney phase. So do you all mind if I hack this conversation? This is anonymous entering the entering the Lost Horizons. Yeah. Anonymous um, doesn't ask for permission, man. Exactly. So 
I was going to do Your name's it. Adam. Anyway, don't dox me on the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bro, no doxing, bro. Yeah, no doxing, bro. Has anyone heard... You can edit or... that out. You're editing it, so... <laughs> That's true. I'm editing everyone out but me. It's just going to be long periods of silence. Um, but I'm still going to keep it the same. Yeah. <laughs> just That's me, fine. just my soliloquy. Yeah. It's okay. just Adam talking to the air and laughing at things that no one has said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Spurts, random spurts of laughter. <laughs> yeah. In complete silence. It'd be like a John Cage piece. Hey, no one wants Adam uh, to talk, apparently. So we're just going to keep interrupting him. That's right. Maybe I don't want myself to talk. That's why I'm participating in all of this. Um, well, look, I'm right. trying. I'm trying to not inter- interrupt Neil so much, so I have to interrupt Adam now. That's true. You gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta displace it somewhere, man. You gotta go somewhere. One of, in one place. One of you is the father <laughs> killed. <laughs> I feel like I want to step in the Joker whenever Batman is riding at him in the bike, and he's just like, "I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Come on." So, has anyone heard of or read the book "Strangers in a Strange Land" by Arlie Hochschild? Negative. Okay, so I want to talk about, I don't know if this is going to complicate it, but I feel like it is the bizarro inverse of everything that we're talking about, which is the pleasure of of inclusion and exclusion, right? So I want to talk about this book as a starting point because it is is essentially a sociological study, almost like an ethnography of Arlie Hochschild, who is actually the academic who coined the phrase emotional labor. So that's just kind of something that might be interesting to people. But she basically went to Louisiana around Baton Rouge and basically was spending time with mostly white, working class, poor folks who were voting for conservative libertarian policies that were directly against their own interests in terms of environmental justice. Okay, so basically the whole book is an attempt to understand sort of post-Trump or around Trump. Why is it that white conservative reactionaries vote against their own interest. And she has this general understanding that they have a a kind of myth, a mythos that they all tend to share, even though it's never really talked about consciously or, or talked about explicitly. And the myth is that the way that American society works is that there is a line to a top of a hill somewhere. And everyone is in that line and needs to stay in line to get to the top. And they're reactionary sort of, you know, response to things like entitlement programs and civil rights and social justice is that they perceive that as them spending generations or at least their most of their lives. And again, we're talking about like working class, like poor folks here in the South, white folks exclusively. Not, I th- I'm pretty sure it was almost all white folks she talked to. But their, their reaction against this sort of like leftist, quote unquote, whatever, you know, whatever that means, how we're going to use it, is that people are cutting in line. And it, it isn't like they hate those people and they like want to exclude them consciously. Again, I'm, I'm granting there could be a libidinal economy going on, but it's that these people are cutting in line in a way that they have worked you know, their whole lives and worked very hard to get to the top of the hill. So what's really interesting about this approach, and honestly, I think this book is kind of bullshit and I, don't, I think it's kind of a terrible book, so I'm not endorsing it, but it's an interesting liberal perspective on this. Because what she doesn't know how to grapple with is the inverse of the, uh, the pleasure of excluding people, which is the pleasure and I am being excluded myself, hence the quote unquote reactionary victim narrative. I can have capital, I can have power, I can have the wages of whiteness, and yet I can still perceive myself as being excluded and there's a certain investiture in that discourse. And I want to talk about, I guess, whether this complicates our picture of the left-right divide 
or if it's a different, let's say, cyclical structure that could be operating. I, I actually see a lot of the people I've organized with in the left kind of like flip back and forth between both. It can be like, I'll definitely say this. I come from a bunch of folks who are very similar to the people in Ho Shield's book. They do operate on that. So I just, I want to throw that out there as either like a kind of bizarre, like inverse of the, in, the pleasure and exclusion, or if it's like a different cyclical structure, if we're going to use that kind of approach in general. Because I think we have to be able to explain, like, why is it that we also get pleasure and and why is it that people, despite every particular, you know, measure you could have income, you know, all this other stuff still seem to invest most intensely in the feeling that they are still being excluded themselves. And again, I'm going to say this is a right wing phenomena that I'm mostly talking about. Poor white Appalachian people or whatever resenting line cutters. I mean, I don't like somebody cutting in front of in line in front of me either. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some level of, um, okay. So I, I think you have to make a distinction between different type, the, the sort of person who's feeling the resent against someone who's beneath them and not accepting their place versus someone who is resenting someone else who's getting in front of them before they get to get there, you know, get to the front of the line. Uh, I, I think those are two different kinds of resentments. And, and I think that they're, they're, they're both feed into reactionary resentment, but uh, they are two different kinds of resentment. This makes me think of, uh, as I've said on a previous episode of, well, here we are still after all quality British melodrama is a basic fucking human right. And I'm going to reference <laughs> Downton Abbey here. Uh, I only watched that soccer show you were talking about there. It's pretty good. Yeah, Quite you like that? Yeah, I did. That's cool. Um, <laughs> the English Game, good show on Netflix good if show. you want to watch it. Anyway, so on Downton Abbey, good there's, show. There's this thing where uh, a chauffeur, Tom Branson, spoilers here for people who haven't watched the show, he ends up marrying uh, the daughter of a of a his employer, and in marrying her. Uh, you know, he basically marries into this family that he was a servant of and they, he starts like kind of like living upstairs, you know, in, in the big house and, and becoming integrated into this family. And now the servants who used to be, you know, his equals or sometimes his superiors, like if they were, you know, the butler is, is the, and the housekeeper are kind of head of the the servants uh, are having to call him sir, you know, and ask and wait on him and, and ask him what he wants. And they are just livid. They're livid that he has gotten out of being a servant. How dare he not be a servant? And all of them don't want to be servants, right? For the most part, they, they all have some resentments about being servants. So the idea that somebody could have escaped is something that they, they resent, uh, I think a lot, Right. And then that that leads to all sorts of aggression and and whatnot. I mean, for me, this is basic death drive kind of stuff kind of coming out here where there is a, for most people, uh, myself included in this, most people, there is an enjoyment in doing things that are destructive and and in in destroying our social relations and in um, holding ourselves back from being non-destructive. Uh, the, this is the this is when Chris said the thing about you know I was punk rock. I, I remember what it was, how much fun it was to be like they're not they're not punk rock enough or or whatever. Um, there was enjoyment in that, but that was a destructive thing. Or at least I would argue that it was a destructive thing. Mm-hmm. Because, it was absolutely. I was yeah yeah. Being destructive feels great, and, yeah. and I, I think that's what you're you're describing, Adam. And that's that's where the importance of the libidinal economy I think can't be overlooked. Is that there is 
and intense enjoyment from doing things that are going to destroy us. Capitalism is one of the greatest examples, I think, of the death drive. We do things through capitalism that are massively destructive to everything, right? For most people and, and, and for the environment. And we're really having fun doing it. It is great. It is convenient. It is fun um, to just like be like, eh, it's somebody else's problem. And to have the, you know, the, the torture and the, I don't know, brutality of capitalism be something that we just don't pay any attention to because we get to enjoy capitalism. You know, when, when we go out to the store and buy a, a new computer to make podcasts with or whatever. I'm not enjoying any of this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I am here to help. I, I am thoroughly miserable all the time. So does that mean my death drive is just like faltering or what? Or am I, am I just enjoying uh, destroying other things like friendships? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what Bakunin says is that, oh, I'm going to fucking book a, butcher the quote now, but it's something like the passion for destruction is a creative joy or something yeah. like that. It's like the, the idea is that in, in the constant violent dismantling of everything, that the potential for the new becomes actualized. I don't think it actually applies here, though. But no. I think that's I think that that's what we think a lot of times whenever we uh or maybe that's the way that we justify things is like you know you you do have to be lashing out all the time in order to uh I guess to be able to realize what it is that you want to see but I think mostly all we're doing is it's well, we're not doing that anyways. Yes, one thing I would throw out kind of going back to my point about a larger systemic logic at play. You know, it's kind of this idea that yeah, there is a lib- libidinal economy that's in action. I can't help but just want to also emphasize that there is a political economy that might create sort of um, like there are places whenever these two things come together or like come close or overlap. And then there are other places whenever they diverge more than not. Like, so if we think about this idea of, let's say, you know, this sort of pleasure and enjoyment and like, I agree that capitalism is again, this sort of like global organization of the death drive in a way that like locks us into it in a way that like, you know, it kind of buys us into a buyer enjoyment in the way that it functions. And yet I also can't help but think, yeah, but there are also times too, whenever, yeah, there might be an unconscious enjoyment going on, but how often is it that we don't have another option of a system to participate in? And there is a larger global systemic logic at play. And I just want to like try to complicate whenever we discuss things like this, because I, I think it's important to recognize that there are two economies and, and, and just that sometimes it's like capitalism doesn't give you a choice to participate in any other system. And how often I'm thinking about Vivek Chibber's work here on basically talking about, uh, I mean, it's a little bit of like a um, analytical Marxist sort of approach, but basically whenever you're organizing with people or how do you make sense of why certain people get involved in being part of the left and other people don't, you know, and there's the typical Gramscian answer of there is consent and coercion. But I think Chibber has a really important idea. He says that, yeah, but maybe we could explain a lot, especially now by inclusion of a third category, which is resignation. And I just wonder about that. Like how often do we just like, yeah, there might be some level of enjoyment. And then how much of of it is literally like an acceptance of what else is there to do? Because this global systemic sort of system gives us no, no exit, you know? And I think at least... I'm thinking about some of the shows that me and CC Alex have done on like Badu, and um, I'm thinking about the episode we did on Zupanchich and what is sex. And you know, I know you and 
you and um, Jay did one on that too. But I can't help but think like there's also this way that there's this, the political economy side has to be held in tension of, of both of those. And to think about, you know, what, what is our response, not just to buying into the system, but the way that we sort of resign ourselves in the face of it. And maybe those overlap at certain points. I don't know. I'm not really sure if they overlap at all times. Know how I haven't thought this out, right? So this is the knee jerk quick response to that. The political economy is just one other way of viewing the economy, the libidinal economy. I, I don't know that I see them as separate. I think you make a great point that, that yeah, I mean, right now is there, it, capitalism is sort of like the only act in town. There isn't really anything to, to say how about, like in, in, in the material world anyways, right? Like in the theoretical world, sure, there's, there's alternatives to capitalism. But in terms of like being able to go to a different country that isn't organized by the logic of capital, you can't, you know, that, that, that's gone. So I, I get that. But um, I think that perhaps one of the reasons, one, of the reasons why capitalism has perhaps been as successful as it is, is because it capitalizes on the death drive, which is a repressed desire for destruction, you know, that, that is inherent in all people. And it has found a way to tap into that. And because it has, and, it, and it's ubiquitous, everyone has it, right? That's, the, that, that's, that's why it's doing what it's doing at the level it's doing it at. I think that one of the things that that attracts me to psychoanalysis from a political point of view, because I think that that psychoanalysis does have something to say about politics. It is kind of like trying to get people to reckon with sort of these, these aspects of themselves that they have disavowed and that they would not want to look at and in looking at them and gaining a better understanding of our own kind of like monstrous natures that we alter our relationship to them. Uh, again, which is you know a point that I tried to make earlier too, and that's why I think it's so important. But I guess like um, to answer your question, I don't see them as, as separate. Uh, maybe I should. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm totally open to that. You know, I could very easily be very wrong about this, but uh, I don't think that they are. Well, I mean, at the risk of sorry, really quick, I just want to say that this might be a really great thing to keep talking about, and also on the Regrettable Centuries upcoming roundtable, y'all are going to talk about systems. I mean, to me, this is. You could also think through this of the lens of like the difference between talking about systems and how systems function and emergent properties and everything else. So, I mean, to me, I don't know if I have a good answer for it either, but it just strikes me that potentially there is like a really important and uh, maybe like really fruitful discussion to have about, yeah, are they the same thing? Are they different? And, and thinking through that, I mean, I don't know if I have a good answer either. Eternally uh, recurrent dichotomy between the objective and subjective, in my opinion. Uh, that is uh, <laughs> that is uh, appearing here is the uh, do we do we look at this from the sort of uh, you know the ad- objective external or from the internal and which is causal and which is caused I don't know if there necessarily is an a, 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 a final answer to that it's certainly um an answer to that is that it's dialectical but um hell yeah that was going to be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. It's dialectical. Case I, I mean, Moving speaking along. of speaking of dialectical, if I could just really quickly, I wanted to uh, bring Hegel into this, right? Because basically, what we're talking about now is whether the master's tools will be able to dismantle the master's house, right? So, I mean, I think, I guess, like my perspective on this right now, I guess from from what we've we've mentioned in this conversation, and like sort of kind of drawing this uh, parallel between, you know, when someone on the right is, you know 
lavishing in their in their sort of power of exclusion, right? And someone on the left sort of adopting the same structure of exclusion and also enjoying it, you know, and kind of finding this to be a, a, it's like this sort of strange anomaly that that we have on the left of like, why is it that we also want to do what the right does? And I guess like my perspective is basically like, look, that there are absolute similarities there in, in this vein, right? Of this like sort of Hegelian notion of like, can we dismantle the master's house? Well, like the answer is no, but can we temporarily like interrupt the master? Yes, we can. And I think that there's like material differences between the rationality on the right, which sort of establishes the impetus behind them using exclusion or like this sort of elitism or like exclusiveness of the like sort of club at the top, you know, that everybody wants to be a part of. This is what makes it so appealing to like young working class white folks. You know, that's why they support people like Trump, because they're just like, it doesn't matter so much what comes out of your mouth. It's just more like, I know that there's a winning side to all of this and I want to be on that winning side. And so it's like, even if it's, you know, directly affecting my life to choose the Republican party that, you know, doesn't care about working class people like me, I want to be on the winning side of politics. So therefore I'm going to like join in on the side. Like, I think that there's a, there's like a material difference between that rationality of like, we're at the top, we get to make the decisions that happens on the right. And the rationality of the left, which is that there are people who suffer as a result of that exclusionary impulse. And therefore, if the only tools we have to fight it are to also be just as exclusionary in like this ruthless way, then then we're going to have to do it. You know what I mean? And so I guess to draw the parallel is like important because it's not a sustainable program for the future of the left, right? To just like be exclusionary in the same format that the right has always been exclusionary. But I think that there are like material differences that have to be brought into this, right? Like, yes, maybe in the political sphere, like what you watch on the news and stuff, there isn't a huge difference between the people who are complaining uh, about, you know, who needs to be canceled on the left versus the people on the right complaining about who doesn't and who does get to be in their like sort of discursive perspective on the world. But I think, you know, for the working class, there are huge differences between who should and who should not be involved in their political, uh, like in the political decision-making at large. And, um, it's not the same thing for them to say, you, I don't want you, you know, making decisions on my behalf, you know, versus people on the right who are not really doing it for the same reasons. And so, I mean, I would say that. And I also would say, like, if the issue at hand is like whether or not we can use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, I would say, yeah, I'm kind of with Hegel. Like, no, we can't for the long term. But if in the immediacy, all we have is capitalism and there's no alternative and there's no way to think outside of any of this, then maybe establishing something that looks like capitalism for the time being, not in a capitalist mind mindset or in framework where we're trying to just like be the best capitalist, but something that fits into the framework so that we can like dismantle this, like a, a, a mass groups of people to like join into a movement is like something that should still be able to be seen as legitimate, even if it does look like the exclusionary uh, rhetoric of the right, I guess. And it's like, you know, that kind of coming back to like what I was saying before about being on the left and also feeling like, I don't really give a fuck what people think about my perspective or like what I say half of the time, it's kind of like we take so seriously inclusion and like representing the working class that I think sometimes we like are quick to dismiss potentialities that may make us doubt in ourselves that we actually have that perspective and that we're in keeping with our own principles.
I just wanted to say really quick that the whole quote about the master's tools from Audrey Lord, no one ever quotes the second part, which is we have to use the master's tools because we have no other tools to start with. So I just think it's important to, to add that second part. I love that he ran from across the room to unmute his mic to say that. <laughs> that, that was incredible. That's what I, I mean, would have done, but for something just actually not helpful. Yeah, but, something. Yeah, but it would have been funny. Well, it's like whenever whenever Adam said he wanted to hack the conversation like Anonymous, I was going to try to say, well, I want to hack the conversation like QAnon, but then I was looking at QAnon Reddit threads and I couldn't understand how to make a QAnon joke because it was <laughs> yeah. QAnon so, is utterly so, so fucking so bonkers. I was like, I'll just read something from this. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Jason, you and I are the dialectic in motion together. My, my dialectic hands are moving. That's, that's what I always thought. But this is the thing here, right? Like, so we're we're doing the exclusionary thing here. We're excluding QAnon, and this is maybe I'm going to be totally bonkers here. <laughs> like, this is going to be. I don't know, great. man. I don't know. I think I might be okay with excluding. Hold on a second, though. <laughs> hear me. Hear me out on this. But well, Wayfair Gate, Wayfair Gate, you guys, you're forgetting oh. Wayfair Gate. What, what, I'm, there. what I'm trying to say here is that QAnon is a group of people that are victims of a desire to identify, right? They, they want an identification. Yeah. They, they get enjoyment out of being part of this thing, which is, makes no sense at all, right? But Marxists get a huge amount of enjoyment out of belonging to some kind of like Marxist thing, right? Too, we have this in common. And that identification and the enjoyment of identifying with this larger group, this, this social thing, um, is something that has an effect on the way that we think, on the way that we act, on the way that we speak, so on and so on. Uh, and, and we are not, QAnon is not the only group that is happening to you. Now, it is happening to them in a specific way, which is totally nuts and makes no sense at all. But uh, under that, that it's not as if they are the only group that is experiencing sort of like the destructive uh, enjoyment that comes along with intense identification. Shit. You're not wrong. <laughs> like it is important to human, to humanize the people on the other end of this, but, um, say, but Marxists uh, I'm, I'm right. saying their monsters are, 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 are <laughs> monsters yeah, that's too. That's the difference is we're yeah. right. <laughs> They're wrong. <laughs> but well, no, right. I mean, so it's true. No, it's true. This is a conversation that we've had when it comes to, um, slightly more easier phenomena to understand like fascism there is a there is an appeal that fascism has to uh the exact same people something real right to tap into something real and it's not and it's not even just like the basic alienation and disempowerment that comes from being not a capitalist right but there's also you know and we've we've made this point a million times and i think for good reason but it's also this appeal to the to the romantic and mystical side of life that uh, strict vulgar materialists don't want anything to do with. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make an equation necessarily between the, the average person who spends time reading QAnon or, or conspiracy theories in general and a person who is enthralled to fascism. But it is the case that there is a, uh, there's an aspect of life that is unfulfilled and is unaddressed and it finds a way to, it, it gets channeled somewhere, Right. And uh, if not here, then where else but elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of that death drive, I mean, fascism is the ultimate death drive, isn't it? I mean, uh, I mean, y'all know I'm, I'm, I'm a big environmentalist, but I also simultaneously oh, I, <laughs> identify with 
in in Fight Club when when what's his name was narrating and he's like I you know he wants to put I want to put a bullet between the eyes of every panda that won't fuck and I want to open the dump valves on every oil tanker to smother all the French beaches that I'll never see I want to breathe smoke that kind of a death drive I intimately identify with while at the same time I want to abolish every oil tanker from the face of the earth and save every species from going extinct. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily at all times know how to reconcile those opposing drives, but they coexist. I just Maybe really appreciate I really appreciate you laying out your real Teddy K hours for us. <laughs> You're welcome. Cause I, I, I have those in some way. I definitely sympathize Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to do with the uh, in, the terrible in disparity <laughs> between these two things. This is the stuff that keeps us safe, ultimately, right? Like, I mean, the the identifications that we engage in, the belonging that comes with those, the coherence that comes with the, the narratives that we believe uh, are important, whether they're religious or political or psychoanalytic or whatever, are, are keeping us safe from the horror of the real. Which is the the fact that we are we are limited, we are going to die. Uh, it is going to happen. We might be able to you know have this thing this this hole in the real that is our life last for a, a good amount of time, but it does come to an end. And this is terrifying. Like this is a truly terrifying thing. And I think it terrifies some people so much the powerlessness that they have in relation to the real that they invest in these fantasies of identification to an excessive degree which looks pretty psychotic or is pretty psychotic and, and and what i'm trying to say i think one of my big projects here is to say that i am just as vulnerable to these missteps to these the, to the belonging gone wrong to over identifying with something and having that become uh, more important than than the principles uh, that that really matter to me. That can happen to me. It can happen really easily, and because I think it can happen really easily. I have to be as vigilant as I can be, and as kind of like critical of myself as I can be, and recognize that under the right circumstances, I turn into a monster. And it, it, it's hard to do this because it, it's a it's a recognition of my own monstrousness, which I would rather not recognize. But it is a part of me. You know, the death drive is a part of me. The enjoyment I get from destroying myself and my social relationships and other people who I disagree with and groups that I think are dumb, that's, that's all part of me. And mm -hmm. I, I got to watch out for it, you know, um, is the, I guess, idea that I have. I mean, Neil's keeping it pretty real, but be advised. Keeping it real can go wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you know, there I, was a sh I've show seen I watched. Examples. Yeah, I have too. I was thinking there's this really great show I used to watch that would just give you constant examples of how keeping it real can go wrong. Yeah. Yes, Google, Google, everyone Google <laughs> when keeping it real goes wrong and you'll see an excellent documentary on the subject. What sucks is actually, Neil, those were just like brilliant closing comments if I would have allowed them to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, I mean, given a good enough editor, Adam, if you can live up to the standards that we're setting here, uh, I you think could you could just cut off the bullshit good. at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. Remarks. 
I'm gonna right. I'm gonna cut that out and then put that as the beginning. Put that at the very very <laughs> beginning. There you go. Uh, I just want to say one thing in response to him. I'll be really brief because I, I know everybody's got a jet. I got a jet too. So um as as much as I think that I like one hundred percent subscribe to what Neil just said, I, I also have the capacity to like be a monster if I don't, you know, keep in touch with my principles and you know, allow death drive death drive to like just fully motivate me in the directions that it wants to motivate me. There's also no such thing as a like a nonpartisan position, right? Like if if what we aim to do is is change things or in some sense make uh, a, a new space for ourselves so that we could stop, you know, enjoying uh, like weirdly unconsciously enjoying our participation in capitalism. Maybe back in was right, you know, like destruction can be creative. And like, I don't think that it's necessarily always the case that all people who are following their death drive are in some sense, not aware of themselves doing this and are, you know what I'm saying? Like, like that there are, there are times when, because there is no other choice, the only solution is to follow that. And I'm not, and I'm not advocating that we all just like go out and, you know, like um, blow up an oil tanker, <laughs> wink. Um, but like, you know, like, but <laughs> hey, I'm advocating it. All right. I'm just going to put that out there. I mean, I mean, put a bow on a oil tanker. Did I say blow up? What was I talking about? Uh, but like, I just I hope I don't that know Amazon's going to let me return my EMP device. <laughs> right. Like, I just I don't know, man. I'm just saying, like, I I recognize that, like, you know, the death drive is like a dangerous thing. We all have to keep ourselves in check. But like, I also think that like we were talking about before with Marxism, you know, kind of being right. Like, yeah, like there, there's a side of this that's that's right. And there's a side of it that's wrong. And as much as we want to, like, step back from it. And and tell ourselves that like to be careful and to not make any commitments. At some point, we're going to have to make commitments. And the longer that we wait, not making commitments, the more devastating, like uh, sort of subjective destitution we're all going to experience from having to have done that. So um, it's important for us to invest deeply in what kind of commitments we're making and why and all of that in the time being, you know, and it's not enough to just be like, you look just like your enemy. So be careful, right? Like we also have to like, be okay with looking like our enemy sometimes. Um, and so, you know, not to just call you out directly, Neil, because I did, ag- I do agree with your last, your statements. I just, I don't know. I think I also, I think I also disagree with you to be like, dialectical, you know, <laughs> well, I, mean, on, I agree yes. and disagree. I mean, on some level though, I, mean, I agree, but more like, strongly disagree. <laughs> So on some level, though, aren't we trying to talk about the dialectical reversal? I mean, isn't that what makes what we're trying to sort of flesh out together different than just pessimism? We're trying to talk about the dialectical nature of it. And so maybe we're we need to be aware of like how at certain points, like kind of the things that Neil's describing are exactly what has to happen. Right. And yet the hardest question to me that no one has an answer for that people have directly asked us, like, hey, what is your answer to this? I think is. What does the dialectical reversal after that look like? And I think that's maybe what we're all trying to figure out. The negation. Yeah, Adam, the negation. I, I thought I, I thought we were at, uh, headed toward an end, an end, but you just keep reopening it back up. This, is my, shit. this is my Midwestern social, uh, socialization bullshit. It's like every time you're like, hey, all right, I'm going to go. It's like, hey, actually, you know what? And then it's like another two hours of conversation. I This is a horrible thing that I have. He's doing the podcast from the metaphorical threshold of the door because he's gotten up from the couch and he's already stood in the living room. We're, we're almost to the, to the car. Where we wait. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, I mean, on that note, <laughs> our next... Is where uh, we wait? Yeah. This is where we wait. Well, pretty far along as it is, man. I'm just sitting here getting older every minute. 
And I'm going right out the door. This world is 